All right, so this morning we are going to uh, continue on uh, our study through the Lord's table. And, and as Hope was rejoicing, and we rejoice with her this morning, and we as believers should rejoice, we get to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to look at the Lord's table, and we're going to look at the resurrection and hope associated with that, all of that being inferred and included as part of the Lord's table as part of communion by Jesus himself. So uh, here it is fitting. It's like, it's like God knew what he was doing. Um, and so <laughs> it's like God knew what he was doing. Of course he knew what he was doing. But let's, let's look at this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 for just a moment. Uh, I've tried to, as we've gone through these last couple of weeks, look at most of the instances uh, in the Gospels. Uh, and I don't know that we've gotten them all, but uh, just look at them from different perspectives. We know that different authors uh, have different emphasis and different uh, perspective on the events that they were eyewitnesses to. And so getting that broad spectrum of, of understanding. So but let's look at Luke chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. Jesus says, for I will, 22, and he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now, and we've talked about this in the past as we studied through the book of Daniel. While the kingdom of God was initiated with the birth of Jesus Christ, because here is the king born, here he is uh, taking flesh and tabernacling, uh, temporarily living amongst us in that form. While the kingdom was initiated as birth, it really doesn't, it's not in full effect until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have that foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a foreshadowing of all of those deliverances that we're going to talk about this morning at the Passover. So here is Jesus Christ sharing this Passover meal with his disciples, being the last meal that he's going to take in this uh, before his crucifixion and death and resurrection. And he's talking about eating again later. He's talking about, I will eat again later when the kingdom is, is, has come. I'll drink of the, the, of the cup later when the kingdom has come. Jesus is talking about a physical resurrection. He's not talking about a spiritual resurrection. He's giving a concrete, tangible confirmation of who he is and what he is about to finish on the cross and in his resurrection, rising again three days after his death. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8 for just a moment. It was no surprise to Jesus that, it was, that this was coming, and ultimately it should be no surprise to his disciples. Jesus has been talking about, through the Gospels up to this point, he's been talking about the need to go to Jerusalem so that he might suffer. And in fact, we read in the Old Testament, this is foretold. This is part of the reason why he came. Isaiah 53 is a poignant chapter in Scripture, giving us the idea that Jesus Christ is that sacrifice 
that he came so that he might suffer on our behalf. But in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus had been giving this instruction to his disciples. He told them that he was going to die, and he told them that he was going to rise again. In fact, and we looked at this last week, I believe, when the, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when his enemies were questioning him and asking him for a sign, Jesus said there won't be any sign given you except for the sign of Jonah who was in the belly of the well three days and three nights and then was spewed out on the, on the beach there at Nineveh. And Jesus said, in the same way, my body will lay in the tomb for three days, only to be resurrected, brought back to life. This isn't a spiritual resurrection that Jesus is talking about. This is something physical. This is something that the world around him could look at and not have any equivocation. There's no wiggle room. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. And we see Jesus and we understand it to be a physical resurrection. Not only did Jesus share the meals with his disciples after his resurrection. You remember the scene in the Gospels where they're out there fishing and Jesus is here making the fire, getting everything ready and preparing the meal, and sharing that meal with them. Consuming the food in his resurrected, physically resurrected body. A spiritual resurrection would be a mighty convenient thing if we're just trying to deceive people. You can't prove it. You can't test it. You can't point to anything that confirms the reality of what's happened. And God in his willingness and desire to make everything as plain and as simple and as substantial as it could be, didn't plan a spiritual resurrection. He planned a physical resurrection. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 25. We talk about the resurrection resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about some, uh, some event that is history or legend. We're talking about something that is factual. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the credibility of the Bible as a historical document. And we're not going to do that this morning. We've done that in the past, but it is incredibly trustworthy. More trustworthy than any other document that exists today, by far. And here we have this historical account of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. In Mark chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus again here in the, the upper room, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's talking about his physical resurrection. Turn with me to Matthew 26. We find this same account, as I said earlier, we're trying to get the different perspectives, but we find the same thing being discussed in all the Gospels. In Matthew 26, verse 29, Jesus says, I, will, I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Jesus is looking forward to and expecting this physical resurrection. Now turn with me, if you will, to, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, probably one of the most substantive passages. We've been here a lot, but this is one of the most substantive passages in Scripture when it comes to the resurrection. And I want to just point something out that as we get into 1 Corinthians 15, we have this very simple statement of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I want to just pause there for a moment. Paul says in verse 3, I delivered unto you what I had received. There's a creedal understanding of the gospel. That these are the facts of the gospel. And then the, I bring it up as a creedal statement because this existed before it was penned in 1 Corinthians. In other words, the early church believed that Jesus Christ, in fact, died according to the scriptures, was buried, and then he rose again according to the scriptures. That was their belief before it was ever penned. And the reason it was their belief is because as we go into the next few verses, we have this discussion about the witnesses of the risen Lord. How he appeared to Cephas or Peter and to James. How he was seen by Paul, he says, who, who was born out of due time. I was a little late to the game, in other words. And he discusses this, these witnesses of 500 all at one time. And he says the greater part of them are still alive today. In other words, go and ask them what they saw, who they saw, what they witnessed. The nail prints in his hands, the nail prints in his feet, the spear wound in his side. And here he is communing with them. This is foundational. Here God has included it in Scripture. He's authenticated this creedal belief, this, this very foundational understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's foundational to the gospel because it's Scripture before it was written. And it's that way in two senses. One, it's truth. But secondly, it was also foretold in the Old Testament. That Jesus Christ would be born, that he would hang on a tree, that he would rise again the third day. And if we jump down to verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 15 for just a moment, Paul says, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's a rhetorical question. Paul says, listen, if people can't rise from the dead, then what are we going to do with Jesus Christ who clearly rose from the dead? It's foundational to our belief, folks. Verses 19 through 20, he continues on. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. A statement of fact and of certainty. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. The first one to be resurrected and remain so, to remain alive, to remain unconquerable by death. There were others who were resurrected before. There were those, Lazarus is a great example, raised from the dead by Jesus himself, but Lazarus would die again. He'd experience another physical death. But just as sleeping is that metaphor for death, Jesus Christ is the first fruits, the first to re resurrect, come back to life, and to remain such. In the same way, you and I as believers have that as hope 
that in Christ, we will be raised from the dead, that we will live again, that we will be, as it says in 1 Corinthians, sown in corruption and raised up in incorruption. Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. Let's look at some, some things, some apologetics. Here's a fancy word for you. The word apologetics is an example of a contragram. A contragram is a big word that means it can mean two opposite things. Right? If I make an apology for something, I'm saying that I'm sorry. Or if I make an apology for something, I'm saying I'm standing for in defense of something. It's contragram. So here, as we're looking at Scripture, we're looking at the truth of what happened, the reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and even today is physically existing at the right hand of God the Father. What is the apologetic? What is the defense that we make for that? What do we derive from Scripture that may confirm our faith, that may give us something that we can share with someone who has questions about that very fact? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read the first few verses here. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Now, these are women that had spent time with Jesus. They were his disciples. And they're coming early in the morning, the day after the Sabbath, the third day since Jesus' death. And they're coming to see the sepulcher. They're coming to see the tomb where Jesus' body was laid. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Think about that for just a moment. Here's this stone that was immovable. It had previously been sealed and marked so that if it was disturbed, everyone would know. Yet here is the angel of the Lord. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to hide. The tomb is already empty. Jesus is no longer there. And so they roll the stone back. The angel of the Lord rolls the stone back to give confirmation of the message that he is intending to bring. His countenance, it says in verse 3, was like lightning in his raiment, white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Now those keepers, those are the guard that had been established. Jump with me up to chapter 27. Verses, there's a few verses there in that chapter. that I want to look at. Verse 62 through 66. Now the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. It makes you wonder if they were worried. 
Maybe we got it wrong, guys. I don't think that their only motivation was simply to prevent the disciples, as they say. Command, therefore, they say, verse 64, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. And Pilate said, you have your watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and watching and setting a watch. So these watchers, these keepers that are referenced in verse 4, are the same guard, these same men who are capable, who were able to defend this, that there was no way that the disciples were taking the body. And it says, and for fear of him, fear of this angel, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. They fell down helpless. Matthew 28, verse 5. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, and he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Nowhere in this do we see the disciples sneaking in and taking the body. Nowhere in this... Do we see Jesus somehow slipping out of the tomb? The tomb was empty when the door was opened. And he said, go quickly, tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. And he'd run to bring his disciples' word. You remember that throughout Jesus' teaching, and especially in the book of John, it says, Jesus himself says, I'm teaching you these things so that when they happen, you're not stumbled in your faith. Jesus had done the same thing in regard to his resurrection since we read that in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to instruct them how he had to go and suffer and die and rise again the third day. And he tells them what is going to happen so that their faith may be established and confirmed. These ladies aren't running away with great joy because they have some expectation that Jesus' body has been stolen. They're running with great joy because all that Jesus said has now been fulfilled. And when we realize the substance of that statement, all that Jesus had said, that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that he is, in fact, God in the flesh, that he and the Father are one, and that in him on the cross, all debt for all sin has been paid. We should have great joy. Verse 9, and as they went to tell his disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus to them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Here the risen Lord, Jesus Christ himself, recently back from the dead, appears to these women and encourages them and says, This is the message for the disciples. Tell them to meet me in Galilee. 
Verse 11. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city. So we leave these women and we go back to the watch. We go back to the guards that had been established. So here we have this extremely reliable historical account of what happened with these guards. And they showed in the chief priests all the things that were done. So they go back to the priest and they say, listen, here's what happened. An angel showed up, the ground quaked, we were terrified and fell down dead, and the tomb was empty. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. In the middle of all of this, we have, and it's subtle, but don't miss it. We have the admission of Jesus's enemies, those who were chief and instrumental in his crucifixion, admitting that the tomb was was empty and bribing the guard that they had previously established to tell people that it was the disciples. Their admission that the tomb was empty. And I say admission because it wouldn't take anything to walk over there and see yourself, would it? For them to confirm the report of these men, of these watchers, of these who were there, trained soldiers guarding this tomb. And to see the stone rolled away and to see the place where Jesus himself had laid. It took very little to confirm all of that. And they knew that because that was true, they knew that because the tomb was in fact empty, we have to do something to stop the spread of Christianity. So we're going to pay these boys to tell everybody that the disciples snuck over there at night. And not only did they sneak over there at night, but they overcame us, the trained soldiers, somehow miraculously rolled this thousands and thousands of pounds stone uphill so that they might steal the body of Jesus. The admission of his enemies. And the discovery of the tomb by women, which is an interesting fact because women in this day and age, they're not allowed to be witnesses in a legal proceeding. Yet they're the first witnesses. And here it is recorded in scripture. Right? If you were trying to create a deception, if you were trying to establish an untruth that Jesus had somehow risen from the dead, but he hadn't, you're not going to choose women. Not in this day and age. You're going to choose the most respectable people that you can pay to say, this is what happened. Yet who did God choose? So the, those things that might seem impossible could be conveyed to the rest of the world? Well, he chose these women who nobody would believe. And not only that, we had the admission of those enemies, those who would stand against Christ, who would say, we have to do something. We have to bribe these men because, in fact, the tomb is empty. Turn with me to Matthew 28. 
Let's look at verse 6. It says, He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And if we go to Luke chapter 24 for just a moment, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 7. We have a parallel account in Luke's gospel. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus, but they found an empty tomb. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed, because these women understood the impossibility of the stone being rolled away. They understood the impossibility of the Lord rising from the dead. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, these angels, and they were afraid, and they bowed down their faces to the earth, and they said to them, We seek, and the angels say to these women, Why seek ye the living among the dead? Why are you looking for him who is risen? Amongst those who are dead. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee. Remember that he told you in Mark 8, 31 and began there. And all through the rest of his ministry that I'm going to rise again the third day. Saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And the third day rise again. We have this account and these, these witnesses telling us that the tomb was empty. Here's the thing. If the tomb wasn't empty, why didn't his enemies produce the body? If Jesus Christ, in fact, hadn't risen from the dead and they wanted to stop the spread of Christianity, why didn't they bring the body of Jesus to the town square where everybody could see it? Well, the answer is obvious. The answer is that he was not there that he was alive, that he had risen again. In John chapter 2, verse 22, turn there with me for just a moment. As we look, as we, as we turn to John chapter 2, consider all of the changed lives. Right? We have Peter, who, after Jesus was taken by the mob to be crucified, and he stands there, and they ask him, were you with him? And Peter says, no, not me. And they said, no, 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 surely you're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. I know where you're from. You were obviously, you were one of the guys with him. And Peter denies again the second time. And when he's pressed the third time, he denies Christ yet again. We know the story, right? At that moment, the rooster crows and, and Peter remembers what Jesus had told him. Yet what do we find Peter doing afterwards? Well, we find him going throughout. As we get into the book of Acts, we see Peter being the one who is primarily spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes to the beautiful gate with John, and he says, listen, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and rock. And he grabs him by the hand, and he pulls him up, and immediately he's healed. His ankle bones are all put back together. And what happens? They go into the temple, leaping and praising God. We see the change in Peter. And then the very same people who would put Jesus to death, 
Tell Peter and John after they've beaten them, you can't preach in Jesus's name anymore. And what do they say? What is their response? Okay, you're right. We probably better just stop this whole charade. No, that's not what they said. They said, listen, we have to preach what is true. We have to speak what we've seen. The risen Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to share that message. And whether it's right or wrong, you decide. But we know that we're going to do what God says. We see the changed lives of each one of these men. We see their bold stance, whether it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, those two men who came by night and, and, and got the body of Jesus and prepared it hastily for burial. These secret disciples who, after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, boldly come and ask Pilate for the body. You don't stand for something to the point of dying for something if it isn't true. Yet these men were perfectly willing. In John chapter 2, verse 22, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. This is Jesus, and here he's being asked, and he says, listen, I'm going to give you the sign of the temple, right? Tear it down, and in three days I'll build it again. And they go, well, wait a minute. This temple took 46 years to build. But Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. He wasn't talking about the temple there on the temple mount. He was speaking of his body. And as he was crucified, as his body, that temple was destroyed and put into the tomb. Three days later, he did just what he said, and he rose again. And at the end of that, it says that when, they, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had taught them. They remembered this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. In Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for there is a power of God unto salvation both to the Jew and to the Gentile. Paul concludes that there is no reason to be ashamed of that which may be foolishness or a stumbling block to anyone because it is the truth. And he would willingly stand on that truth. We look at Paul and his life. He had everything going for him. Right? He was a Jew of Jews, he would say. Touching the law, he was blameless. He was the tribe of Benjamin. All of those things. And he describes that and he says, I would count it all as loss for the excellency of knowing Christ. In fact, he was really going places. He was the chief persecutor of the church at that time. Remember when he was Saul and he got letters so he could persecute and bring back to Jerusalem anyone who would not recant so they could be put to death. And he encountered the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. That's when he was born out of time, right? He was sort of late to the game. But there he was. And we see this drastic change in Paul's life. He goes from being the chief persecutor, the chief person who is putting to death the disciples of Jesus Christ, to the one who is spreading the gospel, who is pinning epistles, letters all throughout Asia Minor, telling him about Jesus Christ. And he declares boldly, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not fearful to preach it. It doesn't matter what may happen to me so long as Christ is known. Why would they change? 
Why would there be such a substantial difference in Paul, in John, in Peter? Because it was real. Because Jesus wasn't in the tomb. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. Because he sits now on the right hand of God making intercession for you and for me. That's why. Because it's real. Because it's true. Because it is a fact. In John chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me for a moment. John chapter 18, let's begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Kedron, where was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, comes thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. I want to just pause here for a moment, right? This predates, this is ahead of time. This is before Jesus is crucified, even. This is when he begins, this is when they come to get him, to take him for trial. Judas betrays him. And I come here specifically because we want to talk about sovereignty. We want to talk about what God is doing in the midst of us in the midst of his disciples here in this day. And I know we've talked about it over the last couple of weeks, but in particular, let's look at this. Here it is. They come with torches. They come with weapons and lanterns. They come. And what, is it, what does it say in verse 4? Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? It was no surprise that Judas was going to betray him. It was no surprise that they were going to come in force as they did. It was no surprise that he was going to go to the cross. Just before this, Jesus had been praying, Lord, if this cup can pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And the question that I want you to mull over, that I want you to think about, is who is in control? Who is sovereign in this circumstance? It's not Judas. He was manipulated by other evil men, paid, bribed to betray Christ. It isn't those who were carrying the torches and the lanterns, because as we see, when they respond, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am. In verse 6, as soon as he said to them, I am, they went backwards and fell on the ground. He literally spoke his name, I am, the name that God had told Moses all the way back there in the book of Exodus, I am that I am. And when Jesus responds with his name, they fall over. They can't even stand before him. So they're obviously not in control. They're obviously not the ones who are bringing this to pass. If we jump over to verse 11, then Jesus, <laughs> Peter, who's going to stand for Jesus, right? He pulls out his sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus rebukes him. Poor Peter. I mean, not poor Peter, but he gets rebuked. He's doing what he thinks he needs to do, but he's missed the memo that Jesus has been giving him from the very beginning. I have to die. This is what's going to happen. And this is the time. Peter was just in the upper room where they were breaking bread together, where they were having and instituting the Lord's table. 
And Jesus told Judas, listen, what you do, do quickly. In response to the question, who is going to betray you? Peter witnesses all of that, and he still kind of misses it. And he pulls out his sword, and he cuts off Malchus's ear. And Jesus rebukes him, and he says in verse 11, Peter put thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? This is what is supposed to happen. It's not Peter. It isn't Judas. It isn't those who have come to take Jesus. It is God himself. It is Jesus Christ who is in control of everything that is happening. He is in full control of what is happening. He's in full control of the death that he is about to suffer. And as Romans 5.8 tells us, while we were yet sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until all of a sudden, boy, we're, they're accepting of me. They, they really like me. He didn't wait until we had sort of cleaned ourselves up and become acceptable in front of him. No, he, while we were yet sinners, while we were in the midst of being his enemy, Jesus was literally dying for the people who came with weapons to take him. And as we read elsewhere in the Gospels, he says, listen, I could call legions of angels. But this is what's supposed to happen. A few, ver a few pages earlier in John chapter 10, Jesus gives some insight to his disciples as he's talking in the parable of the, the, she the good shepherd. Speaking of himself, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. You notice that? That Jesus is going to lay down his life, that he might take it again. He's in full control of what's happening here. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So here is Jesus walking in submission, walking in obedience to the plan of the Father that he has promised since the fall to redeem mankind. And Jesus is going to take his life back up that third day to confirm all that he has promised. Now, Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20 for just a moment. In Revelation chapter 20, we have this very harrowing scene. Jesus taught very clearly about the reality of hell. That it's a place that exists, that it's a place of torment and punishment. And as we get into Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Jesus talked about being born twice and dying once. Right? We would experience physical death, but that would be it. Here he's talking about and he's giving us insight into what the second death is. Right? So death and hell, which is only the temporary holding place for those who are apart from Christ, those who are separated from him. And then it gets worse. And then it gets worse. Hell is cast into the lake of fire. And that is the second death. There is no chance. You're stuck. It's appointed unto man to die once and this the judgment. And, and then the judgment. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. 
right? God is telling Adam and Eve that, that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of the good and evil in the midst of the garden, you will die. And in the Hebrew there, what it means is that dying, you will die. That's a more accurate translation, but it makes very little sense when you just read it. But it means that dying, you will die. Adam and Eve didn't immediately keel over dead. But the process of decay and death began. And ultimately, they did die a physical death. But it wasn't just a physical death that God was proclaiming there. He was proclaiming a spiritual death. You are now separated from me. And he, in fact, if you, if you look in Genesis, right, as he casts them out of the garden, he establishes this guard. Why? Because he didn't want to see man stuck. He didn't want to see man without any eternal hope of being redeemed. Stuck, living forever after they eat in the tree of life and not being able to be redeemed. So in his mercy, he casts them out, but he tells them, listen, this is, this is it. Dying, you will die. Romans 2.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no man, woman, or child that hasn't sinned, and we all understand that. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. What we earn by our sin is death. But he continues on, and this is where the good news starts, right? He says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. As we were about to come to the Lord's table here in just a few minutes, we need to wrap our head around. Right? We're going to remember those things that God has done, that he has finished in Jesus Christ. We're going to remember the broken body. We're going to remember the shed blood. We're going to remember that. And in the midst of all of that, there is a remembrance made for our sinfulness. Because if it wasn't for our sinfulness, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Now, that doesn't mean that's where we stay as believers. James 1.15 makes it very clear that we are all sinners. There's no hope. Man's default position is separated from God. We are his enemies. We are sinful. That is just the way it is. And because we are his enemies, because we are sinful, our eternal destiny outside of Jesus Christ is hell. And ultimately, the lake of fire, the second death. Eternal punishment, destruction, separated from God. But God took the time in Jesus Christ to remove the sting of death. Right, And that's where it was. we as believers, we have the opportunity to remember what Jesus has done. We have the opportunity to remember that because of his shed blood and that because of his broken body, we are redeemed from that. We are spared the consequence of our sin. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus Christ came with the purpose of laying down his life. He was fully in control of that whole circumstance. And he did so willingly knowing that in the midst of all of his suffering, in the midst of his agony, in the midst of all that was a payment made that we couldn't make ourselves. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, 
he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. When Jesus Christ laid down his life and when he took it back up, he overcame death. He overcame Satan. That's good news for you and I, because when we are delivered from that, when he laid down his life and we receive the salvation that is offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone, we escape the penalty of death. And we escape the bondage that we're in to the enemy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. So here is Jesus Christ we're brought into. We have that living hope. Right? Just remember that tomb is empty. And it's empty because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God even now, physically interceding for you and I. He is there in his physical resurrected body. We have this living hope, this confirmation And he didn't do it privately. It wasn't some spiritual sneakiness. He did it openly by raising Jesus from the dead. By rolling the stone away and saying, look, here it is, the place where Jesus was. And he's no longer here. First Corinthians chapter 15 again, if you'll turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We remember that in Jesus' death and resurrection, he has overcome death. That he has delivered us from the bondage that we lived into it. Paul would talk about it in different terms. He would say things like, to live is Christ, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He would talk about it in such that I desire to go and be with Jesus, but it's more needful that I remain with you, so here I am. He looked forward to being in the presence of God, because to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord, if we know Jesus, if we are born again, if by faith we've accepted the sacrifice that he's made on our behalf. And so when we, when we look at it, the sting of death, the, the poignancy, the that which would seal us indefinitely in its grasp is removed. And it's not original to me. You hear it more, it's almost cliche, but right, it's like a scorpion whose sting has been removed. It's there. And when we experience death around us, we grieve. It's sad. There is loss associated with that. But as we read in 1 Thessalonians, it says, no, we don't grieve as those who are without hope. Because we know that those who have died in Christ will see again. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Jesus is waiting. He sat down until all of his enemies be made his footstool. And at some point, we're looking forward to that. And we talked about this a little bit as we went through Daniel, right? That at some point, death ceases. 
Now he's overcome it. He's conquered it. He has defeated it. What it means for you and I is no longer this eternal separation, this loss for all of eternity. But he's looking forward to that being subjected underneath him. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. When this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this is speaking of our physical body. This is talking about the resurrection of the church, you and I. When this corruption, that is our bodies that are corrupted by sin, shall put on incorruption, be made in a body like Jesus Christ that is without sin. And this mortal shall put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Verse 57, this is important, but thanks be to God, which has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer stuck in sin. When God looks at us, because of the exchange of righteousness that happened in Jesus Christ, him being made sin so that we could be declared his righteousness. No longer are we sinful. When God looks at us, he says, look, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. This is my child who is justified and made sinless by my declaration through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You and I have a response to what Jesus has done in our lives. We have a response that is appropriate for what he has provided on our behalf. Be ye steadfast in the Lord, unmovable. Continue in the things of God. Paul would put it this way in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, that you will give your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. We look forward to, as believers, a unified experience. And I've talked about this in the past, and I know we've talked about it, but this is important because we are hoping for reality. We're hoping for the reality of our life hid with Christ in this world. It's part of the hope that we have. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. This is part of the hope that has always been associated with the church. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith not having received the promises, but have seen them afar off. And were persuaded of them and embraced them. And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in the heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Okay, whether it's Abraham or whether it's Noah, these 
saints in the past who had been looking forward to something. They were not looking forward simply to a pat on the back or to be recorded here in Hebrews chapter 11. They were looking forward to the unification of existence, of their faith being counted to them as righteousness, just as Abraham's was. And the result that that had in their life, to be brought into the city of God, as it were, into heaven, into God's presence for all of eternity. They weren't looking for and they weren't looking back to where they had come from, it says. They plainly declared and were willing to do so, and in fact, eager to do so, and to declare we're pilgrims, we're strangers here on this earth, that our real citizenship is somewhere else. Now, these are Old Testament saints, but it's always been the same, justified by faith. And because of their faith, they look forward to what God had prepared for them. And in the same way, we get to look forward to that too. We look forward and we yearn for the unification of our experience. That what God has declared about us being justified, we look forward to that being manifest here in the flesh, in that resurrected state. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. And you can think of as you turn there, just think about how great that will be. Right here, we live in this tumultuous world. We live in a world that has disease, decay, war, famine, pest, pestilence is disease. Right? We have these things that are going on all around us. We have economic troubles. We have woes and concerns. We are burdened down and made heavy by all kinds of things. Entanglements in this world, so to speak. And most of those are the results of sin in this world whether it's our personal sin or whether it's the acts of sinful people around us, we're affected directly. Think about this, right? We are being directed effectively, directly affected by the sinful pursuits of other people in other countries right now. And we look at it in a worldly perspective, but that's the reality. We have the same expectation and hope that they had in Hebrews chapter 11, and it's going to come. It will come. Death, where is your sting? It will be gone. Death will be removed. There will be no more dying. There'll be no more concern. There'll be no more entanglement in sin. The sin that does so easily beset us that we read about in Hebrews chapter 12 is gone and it's removed from us. The effects that we have because of our sinfulness on other people and the effects that we experience upon us because of the sin of others is removed completely. In Romans, it talks about all of creation groaning together and looking forward to the manifestation of the sons of God, looking forward to that time when everything is redeemed and made new. Why? Because it's suffering the effects of sin. Revelation chapter 21, and I saw a new heaven, verse 1, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. We have this description, but think about what's happening here, right? Everything has been made new. That earth that we live on right now, the heavens that we look up in the sky and that we see, the universe that we explore today is consumed with fire, we find in 1 Peter. It's burned up. It's gone. And what do we find? A new heavens and a new earth. Just as man has to be reborn, John chapter 3, born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, made a new creature through faith in Jesus Christ. This earth, this creation is going to go through a new birth, and we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. 
Verse 2, and I saw, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God, out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write for these things, these words are true and faithful. This is what Abraham was looking forward to. This is what those Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11. This is the city that they were expecting. And this is what we have as the expectation and hope looking forward. The unification of our experience. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, which Christ, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. This is that distinction. This is that, that turmoil that we experience, right? This expectation and hope that God has declared us to be righteous and sinless, and this is where we live. Our life, our reality, is hid with him in, in heaven. Yet we live in this earth where we experience the effects of sin all the time, and it can be discouraging. As we come to the table, as we come to the, to the cup representative of the shed blood, and we come to the bread representative of the broken body of Jesus Christ, and we understand that in this that in those two elements are symbolized the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for our sinfulness so that we might be delivered from death knowing that God in Jesus Christ was laying down his life willingly while we were yet sinners and taking it back up fully in control and doing so so that we might be reconciled to him We look forward to the unification of our experience, that all things being made new, 2 Corinthians 5.17. That the new creature that we are is manifest and revealed to the world around us. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment, if you will. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Through six. This gives us using the picture of baptism, this illustration of the newness of life that we receive in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Okay, think about that. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. In many respects, he's the foreshadowing of the reality that we have hope for. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Or this picturing of baptism where here is my old nature put into the tomb of the water and brought back out, representing the, us and our identification with Jesus Christ. 
Even so, we should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we should also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, who we were before Christ. And when we think about that, just, just by simple comparison, right? We could talk about the things that we do. We could talk about the things that we wouldn't do. But that's not what's being discussed primarily. Primarily, what's being discussed is that we were enemies of God, separated from him. Now we are adopted into the family of God and declared to be righteous. The old man, it's gone. That's not who we are anymore. Who we are is who we are in Christ, justified and declared to be sinless. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We have a different master. We have a different opportunity before us. We have a different thing that we get to choose to do. Now, here's the, here's the concluding good news in Romans chapter 8, if you will. Turn there with me. Because the result of Jesus' sacrifice, his death and burial, and ultimately his resurrection, the result for you and I as believers in Christ is this. We read it in the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after this the flesh, but after the spirit. No condemnation. In other words, no accusation against us stands. That anyone who might declare, listen, you are sinful, you have failed, you have fallen. And while it may be true, because in Romans chapter 7, we have this whole discussion about the struggle that we have with sin. We look forward to that unification of our experience where God says, you are righteous, and we really are righteous. But the reality for you and I, even apart from that, even apart from the unification of that experience, is that we are declared righteous, sinless in God's eyes. We are no longer condemned and no accusation that anyone or anything would make against us can stand. Just as Jesus said, listen, there is no one that can pluck you out of my Father's hands. We have the security of all that he has purchased for us on the cross. That inheritance that is sure and unchanging and undefilable, preserved in heaven for us. We're going to come to the Lord's table, and it's been a while. So as we do that, I just want you to, as the, the purpose of coming to the Lord's table, the purpose of what God has established in communion is remembrance. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So that's what we're doing here. We're remembering what Jesus has finished. We're remembering what he's done on the cross, his sacrifice. We're remembering all the things that he did, leaving his glory behind. We're remembering even his resurrection and the hope that that brings for you and I as believers. We're remembering. And we're also symbolizing the community that we as believers have in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. So here's the thing, and I'm throwing this out there because it's been a while. It's been a very long while. Don't make it awkward. <laughs> okay? This is the Lord's table. Take it for what it is. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come to your table. We praise you, Lord, for your word and the truth that it speaks into our lives. God, we rejoice that Jesus Christ is risen, confirming all that he has done on our behalf. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And as we come to your table, Lord, I pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would settle our minds, and we might focus and we might remember what you've done for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. As Jesus said when he was preparing and he took the bread and before his disciples, and he broke it just as we're going to break this bread. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. take this bread in remembrance of Jesus's body. As Jesus concluded the meal with his disciples, he took the cup and he blessed it and gave thanks for it. And he told them, this is the cup, this is the, the cup that represents my blood shed for the new covenant.
just as the blood was applied and the angel of death passed over. The application of Jesus' blood in our hearts we have the forgiveness of sins. This is the cup representing Jesus' blood. God, we thank you for what you've done in your son, Jesus Christ. As we have opportunity to worship, to sing praise and give adoration for who you are and what you've done, Lord. We thank you for the moments that we have come and the, the few minutes of remembrance that we're able to make. God, may that spur us on to put off those things need to be put off and to put on those things that need to be put on we thank you lord and we rejoice we give thanks for the resurrection of your son jesus christ it is in his name that we pray and that we give thanks amen